welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Associate Professor in Sociology at the LSC, Dr. Suzanne Hall. Dr. Hall is an interdisciplinary urban scholar and her work connects the asymmetries of global migration and urban marginalization. From the perspective of street economies, she explores the racialized frameworks of citizenship and economic inequality and their everyday contestations. She's also the author of the recently released The Migrants Paradox, Street Livelihoods and Marginal Citizenship in Britain. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Miriam. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. And I'm just very grateful to be part of this project. So thank you for having me. Thank you. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you became interested in studying street economies. So Miriam, I practiced as an architect in South Africa. And I practiced uh, when apartheid had come to an end. And much of our work was work for the state and one of my first projects was, in fact, looking at a, a taxi rank where there were many, many traders doing their business. And over a period of time, we did an anthropological study of these traders, and we then developed an architectural structure to support them. And when I moved to the UK, I lived above a street in South London, a street called the Walworth Road, and I was still utterly compelled by the reality of ordinary people in fairly tough circumstances setting up shop. And I noticed particularly on the Walworth Road that many of the people who had set up shop were migrants. And when I did my PhD then on the Walworth Road and went into the archives, I noticed that from the industrial period, many of London's high streets had been occupied by successive waves of migrants. Um, and this is largely a story of people who become excluded from the formal employment sector and they find their way into other sectors of work and livelihood. And so uh, for the past 10 years and more, I've been looking at streets across the UK, starting in London, but moving then also to Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester and Leicester. So street economies, are they the same thing as informal economies? They're the, the kind of underground world that is sort of beneath the legal, the legal you know, line? Uh, street economies are just like any other economies in a capitalist system. They are composed of a myriad of economic practices. I really love the term from the feminist geographers, diverse economies. So on the street, we'll see highly formalized transactions that are very sophisticated connections across transnational scapes. Uh, we'll see mixtures of illicit economies, just like we do in any other uh, formal economic system. Uh, but we also see incredible economies of care and counsel. And what has been most pertinent for me in doing the street research, particularly at the time of austerity, is to see these economies on the street essentially filling the gap left by a receding state where traders, the religious circuits that they belong to, uh, look after people through feeding schemes, but also form-filling schemes um, and all, all sorts of infrastructures of care. So I, I really think of the economic as an extended cultural and social practice, not simply a transactory practice. Mm, okay, so I want to delve into some of the things you've mentioned there. But before we do, um, I have to ask you, as a white South African, and given your country's history, what does whiteness mean to you? Hmm. Um, I mean, to be honest, it's a it's a word 
that I'm afraid of because of the uh, brutalities of my own inheritance. Um, I was born in 1969 in apartheid South Africa, and I grew up in the very over-entitled space of white suburbia. Uh, Every aspect of my life growing up was segregated on racial grounds. I went to segregated state schools, and I can also remember sessions of weekly youth preparedness where we would have to march on the fields. We were sent to felt school camps away from our families, and these were really part of a curricula to indoctrinate us in um, something that was portrayed as both a racial and a communist threat. And I I think it was really only when I turned 17 and left home, went to Witz University in Johannesburg, where my horizons, my human and political horizons were expanded. And uh, at that point in the late 1980s, the monolith of apartheid was being definitively eroded by really courageous and strategic anti-racist political solidarities um, that were sustained over decades of struggle. And this was something that was really palpable on campus. And it it really uh, gripped me intellectually, viscerally. Um, and it was a chance to, the first chance, I think, to really come to terms with my, my privileges and what the responsibilities are within that to, to challenge unjust hierarchies that are really about racial prejudice. And so presumably this was a segregated campus that you were attending? No. Interestingly enough, uh, at that point, campuses had begun to open up. Uh, There was um, incredibly active forms of political, um, really, energy on the campus. I remember um, the day where Winnie Mandela came to speak on campus. At that point, she was a banned individual, which meant that she was not legally entitled to meet in in a large group. And I remember also on that day, um, sitting on the library lawns, suddenly being surrounded by police and dogs and um, tear gas was fired into the campus. And I remember just running. And I ran back to my architectural faculty And I remember running into a room where half my classmates, half my white classmates, I should say, were still sitting in the lecture as if nothing was was happening. And so I think um, living whiteness in in some ways is straddling um, these these polar divides of a whole lot of people who think they can continue to sit in lectures or in workplaces or in domestic spaces as if violence is not occurring. but I, I, I was compelled uh, by what was going on outside of that classroom. And for me, that has become a much more important avenue for thinking and creating. It's interesting because um, I think a lot of people uh, in this country, in the UK, when they think about whiteness, might think very much of something like the you know, South African apartheid regime. That would be for them, you know, that's whiteness. Do you see whiteness here and how do you relate to your role as a person racialized as white here in the UK context? So whiteness is is pervasive in the UK and as a Western construct, certainly in South Africa, it came, it came from Britain. It was imported as a colonial construct and it definitively was the bedrock of apartheid, even though the apartheid system was very much galvanized by an Afrikaans government. Um, Of course, in the UK, it profoundly affects my work as an academic. I am explicitly mindful, for example, that in academia in the UK, there are only around 350 black female professors. Um, That really equates to less than 2% of higher education's professional group. And so... You know, more and more in classrooms, um, I'm confronted by energetic, uh, clever, engaged students who want to think about the world in more broad terms. They want to engage with wider systems of knowing. They want to uh, be able to delve into uh, a far wider set of geographies. And 
They want to read and think with scholars that are not simply white. And uh, I think that that um, is, a, is a really exciting provocation and a, and a very necessary one. But of course, universities by their very nature are conservative institutions. And so it's, it's taking uh, a long time. It's slow and frustrating. But I think we are buoyed by the incredible energy of our student groups. So when you um, hear the government talking about the dangers of critical race theory being taught in UK institutions, um, is that is that something that you think is in tune with the mood of the students that you are, you know, responsible for educating? Or do you think there's a, a gap maybe in in perception and um, and if so, why? Why is there a and uh, this gap at the government level when it comes to recognizing this need that you've described among your students? Uh, because we live in, a, in an intensely conservative era, and I think the conservative era spans the left and the right of the political spectrum. And I think the institutions of society are equally steeped in this innate conservatism. Um, so I think you know, the, the the debates of what we should and shouldn't teach at university should not be up for parliamentary consideration. It should come from the students, and it is coming loud and clear from the students. And it's not that they don't want to know about um, very conventional or traditional formats of knowing the world. It's that they want to know about a much wider repertoire, to think about inequality, not just through the lens of the class structure in the UK, but through the lens of a class structure in Cairo or in Cape Town or in Abidjan. And I think for me, that's that's a much more exciting prospect that's put on the table, is that we should, we should know about the constructions of power, whether those are classed or racialized or gendered, and we should know about the world through its wide and diverse geographies and, and its histories. So coming on to um, the, the body of work that you focus on, how do you conceptualize the relationship between whiteness and migration? Um, I mean, maybe it's best, it, could I start with, with addressing this question of what whiteness means to me and then move on to whiteness? Please, as an absolutely. Please do. So I would start essentially by positioning whiteness as a system of hierarchy and subjugation, uh, a system very much based on the Western construct of race. I'd say that whiteness is an ideology of entitlement, and it's an ideology that deploys hierarchy, particularly hierarchy, as racialized. But of course, we also know that it enrolls other hierarchies. Um, in order to assert that there is an entitlement to claim privilege across space. And I think alarmingly, that entitlement includes to claim privilege with force. So we see historically how whiteness works through conquest, through control and extraction to secure advantage. Um, we could begin to think of whiteness and its categories of race and its mechanisms of racism as the erasure of human potential, but also the profiting from that erasure. Um, yeah, moving on to the, the... The erasure of human potential has really struck me as a line because it feels so deeply personal um, in a way that sometimes the construct can seem, you know, abstract and impersonal. And actually, that's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? We're talking about the potentialities of, of voices and ideas and, and and lives erased from the tapestry of who gets to be considered part of what's meaningful in our societies. Um, yeah, I think that that line um, is one that will stick with me. Thank you <laughs> for that. Yeah, I mean, it struck me a lot listening to some of your podcasts as well, that you know, what this comes down to is our regard or our disregard, essentially, for our shared humanity and for the figure mm. of the human. 
Um, and so while we talk about systems and while I will use that that word, you know, structural and hierarchy and systemic, um, to unpack some of my thinking, uh, the, the most important definition and regard and respect here is, is how we conceive of the human. Mm. Um, so this is a good segue maybe for me to talk a little bit about the relationship between whiteness and migration. Please, yeah. Um, we could conceptualize um, this as a relationship of border making. I think very much in the historic continuum of, of control, of extraction and subjugation. And uh, here I think it's, it's really crucial to think about uh, the expansive territorialization of British sovereignty through empire and through colony. I think the surfaces, the controlling mechanism of fixed borders and partial citizenships, as well as the extractive processes of, of slavery and of, of indentured labor. So there's long histories to this thinking. Over the past decades, however, we've seen a re-territorialization of sovereignty, particularly following um, the, the colonial project. And we've seen this through a, a highly punitive border regime that positions racialized bodies as inherently suspect. I think that um, what's been interesting for me in, in undertaking some of the research for my book, The Migrant's Paradox, is to see how this migration system operates through an opaque expansion of multiple immigration laws over the past decades. And what we can see um, from this is a number of things. We can see an enhancement of the discretionary powers of the Home Office. We can see, most definitively, a reduction in due legal process. Um, we can also see an increase in highly privatized, corporatized systems of border control. And on top of that, we can see the decentralization of core aspects of border surveillance into the circuits of everyday life. So, for example, coming back to my role as a teacher in the university, I have to take um, uh, a register for my class and that's essentially used to report back to the Home Office. So I think this produces a, a profoundly violent system. And we can see all of this culminating in elements uh, of, of punishment, like the, the, in, the, in the ongoing Windrush scandal, but also the diabolical infrastructures of deportation that we've had uh, in this country. Um, all of these aspects of dense procedures produce what I like to call the consistent production of inconsistencies in public discourse, in policy and practice all around the question of migration. And these contradictions and these inconsistencies play out with profoundly violent impacts. Um, and I, I think, you know, really worrying is to, uh, to, to watch the, the unfolding of the Windrush scandal, not just uh, this year, but the year before that and the year before that, where Commonwealth citizens have been wrongly denied their legal and their human status, but equally to see this continued perpetuation of the camp as somehow a legitimate form of, of holding people. And, you know, we, we, we don't need too much of a reminder into our histories of where that architecture of the camp comes from. Um, and it's very worrying that this is now inserted into part and parcel of a migration system in the UK. So it's interesting listening to you because I, it's, um, it seems to me that if we talked about whiteness in relation to colonialism, it would be fairly evident that the laws uh, and systems produced under you know, the, the empire uh, were destined or um, intended to uphold whiteness. Um, but as soon as we see um, <clears throat> kind of the, the end uh, of formal empire, at least, um, we assume that the, the values uh, that Britain proclaims as its own, freedom, liberty, um, are, are now to be reflected in the ways that 
our systems operate for all. Would you say that there's more continuity than change in the ways that our migration systems reflect the whiteness of the colonial era? I I think there is a continuum. I think it is about um, a definition of belonging, a definition of entitlement. Um, But I think previously where the organizing mechanism was the empire and the colony, today the organizing mechanism is the nation and the border. But I think the continuum is is the continuum of whiteness is is really about um, a global order of both power and extraction. And it unfolds through political, economic and cultural desires, I think, for racial mastery as well as subjugation. And, uh, you know, I hear I think it's also really interesting to reflect back on um, really important thinkers like Aimé Césaire, where they where he he posits that one form of, of racial hierarchy essentially feeds another. And I think we can really see this in the circulation of, of the camp and, and the circulation of the punitive border. Um, mm. But I think that, you know, maybe we could say that in both the system of the colony and the system of the border, um, the, the, the punishment that is fixed is, is on the moving body, on the moving racialized body. Mm. And, and without that has me thinking about something I was reading as I was preparing for today, which was, you know, a hundred migrants are feared dead after a boat capsized off the coast of Libya today. Um, And then that got me looking at the website Missing Migrants, which tries to track migrant deaths. And they were reporting 453 deaths so far this year, 2021. And we're only four months into 2021 at this point. It's, it's, Um, still early days. Um, And I was just thinking about the importance we attribute to deaths and the different importance we attribute to different deaths. Um, Why do you think that migrant deaths don't seem to elicit quite as much sadness or need for action, need for change, need for a response. Um, and I don't just mean politically, I mean from all of us, from us as, as, as people, because we know structures are one thing, but, but, but I think even as people, we don't have the same responses. I won't speak for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the extent of these tragedies is, is fairly mind-blowing. And I think the problem is that the migration system, which is separate from the migration process, has really uh, constructed the migrant as the pejorative outsider. And that's a a deeply dehumanizing process. So I think it is important to start with a question of, of who is the migrant. And to do that, we could begin to see migration on the one hand as a as a highly stipulated system of human regulation, or we could see migration as a complex, uh, varied historical movement of people, whether for travel, cultural exchange, um, nomadic itinerancies or refuge. The current migration system is legally constructed um, to permit the right of a state to designate an individual's potential mobility as as either lawful or as unlawful, and then to issue respective permissions and punishments on on legal grounds. So here I think it's really important um, to think with Nicholas de Genova's term illegality. It's immensely useful because it captures how it is possible for sovereign entities or for nations to predetermine who has the right to exercise their mobility across borders. So you and I, for instance, might take it for granted that our mobility is secured by a passport or or various visa documentations. But what Nicholas's uh, work shows us is that the European border complex has effectively rendered the potential mobility of the majority of the planet's population as illegal. 
Now, that's, that's quite something. So to push this idea further, sovereignty produces and sustains the illusion of the nation as a bounded entity. And with this, the idea of citizenship is tethered to the, to the idea of nation. And it establishes, um, it needs to establish a binary of insider and outsider, um, as well as citizen and, and foreigner. And I think, well, me alongside m- many other scholars, uh, migration scholars, think of, of race as the primary sc- construct that is used um, to designate this pejorative outsider. Mm. And definitely in the UK, we've seen explicitly over recent years that it's the racialized figure of the migrant that reveals the full extent of racecraft in state practices of human borderings. And this, this helps us understand why, even when citizenship is conferred, certain groups are still produced as racialized and as minoritized and they always have their citizenship called into question. So we have groups within the nation whose citizenship is called into question, and we have human beings outside of the nation whose very humanity is called into question. Mm. Well, that that makes a lot of sense to me because it both sort of speaks to the fact that race in in the hierarchy of human value that it creates minimizes the lives of of black and brown people including you know children who are dying just off the coasts of you know places we enjoy summer destinations um but it also you know speaks to a very um close to home reality for me i remember a few years ago my um one of my closest friends uh his mother uh, who's moroccan and wears a headscarf uh was um you know, ill and needed treatment on, on the NHS, but she's she's a British citizen, she's British Moroccan, um, and she was asked several times for evidence of her citizenship. Um, and I remember my friend being really upset about this because, you know, his mum has lived here for um, o- over 40, possibly 50 years. Um, and uh, and we were comparing, you know, I was saying my mum my has been in hospital as well recently and um, not once did anyone come and ask my mum for any evidence of her yeah. citizenship. Um, so so that, you know, what you've been describing does does very much speak to, I think, realities that a lot of the time we're, we're maybe encountering and and because they're so much part of our normality, we're not even really realizing that that's what's at play or that that's what's operating um so so would you say in that sense that our immigration system is part of upholding whiteness i would say it's absolutely constitutive of it uh i think you know it, it is the designation of the insider and the outsider I think in addition, though, to the migration system, we have to look at systems of capitalism and explicitly systems of extraction. And that, I think, is part, in a way, of the story um, of my book. Is I'm, I'm trying to look in the book at multiple forms of displacement and how they intersect. So, for example, um, I, I want to understand why it is that So many varied people from across the globe all end up becoming street traders on on streets in in marginalized parts of UK cities, areas that are under-resourced and over-policed. Why is it time and time again that it's a certain group of people? And I think to to think that one through, it's really interesting to follow um, the term that Oren Yiftichel has developed on displaceability. So... I can see on on my streets, uh, you know, people have become traders who were never traders before they came to this country. Um, The majority of people who are trading on the streets uh, worked in other professions, but they become traders by virtue of their movement to the UK. The story here is of multiple forms of displacement. And the first displacement, obviously, is the one we've been talking about, where you have a displacement of innate citizenship and belonging and and the status of belonging 
through this highly discriminatory uh, migration system. The second, I think, is the displacement of meaningful and appropriately paid work through uh, part-time contracts, casualization, redundancies. Mm. Really interestingly, when we were doing our research, um, particularly, uh, say, in a, in a city like Birmingham, was to learn that quite a few of those traders um, before the 2008 financial crisis had actually worked in public offices. They'd driven a bus, they'd worked in the post office, mm. they'd worked at the local authority, but they were made redundant following the crisis. And we know that there is a disproportional impact of redundancies on groups that are racialized and minoritized. We know that after the, the 70s and 80s project of deindustrialization, and we saw it following 2008. And then the third form of displacement, it's, it's a global form of displacement, is the pushing of the poor outside of the city uh, ever further into the peripheries in order to make way for global speculative capital, often very much holding hands with state-led regeneration projects. So, okay, so-called gentrification. Absolutely. Well, well, much more explicit regeneration, large-scale mm. projects where public housing estates are being dismantled and sold off in order to make way for the next round of development. And uh, there's a lot of people who've done... Um, some really important work on this. Jess, Jessica Pereira, for one, has done a, a really beautiful report on this, really well-considered, thought-through report. Um, and, of course, Adam Elliott Cooper's work in this field is also groundbreaking. So I think, for me, it's important to think about the migration system precisely in terms of how it intersects with urban marginalisation to understand how these these systems all work off one another, and I think you know this is this is part of uh, of an intersectional consideration that's really important. And of course, that's the beauty also of grounded research, is that you see people in their lives as their lives are unfolding, and you see them not simply as migrants, but as someone who's setting up shop or who's someone who's trying to hold on to the rent. And so we then begin to see this this compendium. Of, of displaceability that deeply affects their lives, but much more explicitly because all, all of those processes of displaceability are highly racialized. So in that sense, I mean, listening to you, it sounds as if one important part to consider in challenging whiteness is recognizing the ways in which it operates, uh, you know, in the labor market in the architecture of our cities so that you know this this new regeneration plan in our city center isn't just to be um lauded as you know uh, bringing um i suppose new new investment but needs to be considered in light of the um who who is likely to be benefiting from these initiatives and whose lives are being displaced or affected by them I think that's really well put. So we don't want a process of replacement to occur where we are assuming that one set of values associated with one group of people is going to be uh, more valuable, more strategic, more important than the grounded values that are there, that have made investments over long periods of time, that have built lives, built livelihoods, um, you know, it's it's really uh, a desperate situation that we've got to, particularly in a large city like London, where the property market has become uh, the playground for global financialization and speculation, where we're seeing the selling off of social housing estates by local authorities who are cash-strapped because uh, following the 2008 financial crisis, central government withdrew so, so much of their funding. So we see the selling off of public assets, places where ordinary people have constructed meaningful lives, um, only to be replaced by what is called urban renewal or, or, or urban um, regeneration, but what is in effect really appalling levels of displacement. Uh, Ananya Roy's term for it in the context of the US is racial banishment. Mm. 
racial banishment interesting and and so it is also interesting to me that the conversation around you know regeneration in, in, in inverted commas on this occasion isn't really framed in a racialized way in in our public discourse I mean I probably shouldn't be surprised but um I, I say that in as much as um do you think we've lost a sense of what the social contract is between you know government and the people in that sense because you know if local government's responsibility just as you know central government's responsibility is ultimately to to I mean I guess that's the question what is the what is the responsibility of government vis-a-vis the people Uh, but one might hope that it would be to provide uh, circumstances in which people can uh, live live safe and and fulfilling lives um, in that sense, were we to pose that question, we might say that there's an enforcement of a system that only fulfills that promise for a particular group of people, and actually that group's quite racialized. Yeah, that promise is very privileged as well as racialized. So I think it, it is also classed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, this question of the social contract, we've seen uh, a terrific erasure of the social contract uh, over the past decade more in this country through the brutal austerity program. And I, and I, it's been really interesting to think about where will the reconstruction of a social contract occur? And it is really interesting to look at forms of politics that are collective, considered, caring, that are now really strongly established outside of the state. So the Black Lives Matter movement would be one. Um, The environmental movement would be another, where there is incredible imagination and energy being put into the, 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 the real questions of what it means to be a human, what responsibilities we have to each other and to our planet. But I still think the state is an important dimension here, and I think particularly the local state. And the local state, in order to fulfill its social contract, has to be resourced. And one of the problems we've seen, particularly in the UK following the 2008 financial crisis, is that local government was actively uh, under-resourced, huge amounts of funding were taken away. So you have the case where municipalities lost 50% or more uh, of their of their funding. And so in order to then begin to refund, they go into this exercise of, of selling off their public assets, such as the the, the council housing, etc. So yes, the question of, of uh, the social pa- compact is a, is a major one. And a p- part of that, I think, will be to imagine a much more careful comprehension of the values and necessities of migration as as inherent to our process of of social change and and social renewal Mm. not just nationally not just locally but globally so that's interesting so let's talk about how we talk about immigration in this country generally not viewed particularly positively and yet we're highly dependent on it how do you explain that? Hmm. Um, I, you know, I think I think it is it it goes back to, you know, in a way I'd like to maybe explain it through the title of my book, The Migrants' Paradox. Please, yeah, I was going to ask you about, um, you know, what is the migrants' paradox? Okay, so, yes, please. So, so let's have a go at it through that avenue then. So, I would say that the migrants' paradox. Um, is about the the contradictory interplay um, of capitalism and liberal democracy. And it's an interplay that simultaneously requires and refutes the migrant. So part of the paradox is sustained in border-expanding economic systems at the same time as we have border-preserving political systems. And so we see increases in global extractions and the heightening of nativism as the economic system continues to expand across space, it commands more resources. And at the same time, the political system ideologically contracts to profess a commitment 
to nationalism. So I think the the migrants paradox is is about inhabiting this impossible dualism in everyday life and what it means to nonetheless make a citizenship that is always called um, into question. And so you know how do we how do we begin to analyze that um, in terms of people's lives? So in my book, I try and think about street livelihoods. Um, largely forged by migrants um, as as intricate practices of inhabiting the paradox. So on the one hand, I want to think and write about the structural relations of state and street and and give serious attention um, to these these multiple forms of dispossession, these cultures of recurrent racism. But I also really want to fight for and write about and recognize the human relations between street and world. And I think what's important here is that brutal systems can never politically be given the last word or the definitive claim. Um, and so, you know, Miriam, we, we start with whiteness, but it's not where we need to be ending, and certainly not our conversation when, when we get there. I think that it's crucial that we understand rich intercultural makings and and meaningful interdependencies, which are always with us despite the hierarchies. We couldn't have an education system or a magnificent national health service in this country uh, without this incredible intercultural making and meaningful interdependency in which people from all over the world are enrolled. And so migration fundamentally works for us um, at, at the scale of our lives. It touches us meaningfully. It is separate from the construction of a migration system which has to produce uh, this notion of insiders and outsiders, which has to uh, enroll a politics of fear in order to talk about migration when we come to, to the election time rather than talking about inequality. Um, yeah, so that's so, just some of my thinking on that front. So how do we sustain that, though? Because it sounds, I mean, the, the paradox you talk about is the paradox we've just gone through, right, in the pandemic of being completely reliant on a national health service, which is massively staffed by migrants, whom, who, you know, our lives were literally in the hands of. These are people who were, you know, holding our grandparents' hands as they were dying. These were people who were stroking our heads while we were struggling for breath. And yet, at the same time, we continue to have a system which, you know, as you lay out in your book and have laid out here, you know, places them in a in a situation of con- continuous precarity in terms of their status. Um is is there something about the way that we think about citizenship that is the issue where where i mean if the way that we have constructed citizenship currently upholds you know a hierarchy of human value what does challenging that look like okay so i mean you know our 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 system of hierarchy and subjugation, I, I'm very much hoping that it's on its last legs. I think I'm, I'm very much hoping that Brexit and the 2015 and the 2017 and the 2019 UK general elections are the last gasps of a an outdated relic. Um, it's a relic that can only survive through the nationalist politics of fear. And I wonder how long you can run that line of a politics of, of, of fear. And, and it's, a, it's a fear that's promulgated in order to secure votes. It, it isn't actually proposing anything meaningful in terms of how we work with each other, how we work with our planet. And I think these are all part of a highly disrespectful politics sustained by election cycles, by electioneering, and they all include um, the anti-immigration punditry uh, that's used as a substitute to avoid talking about uh, the horrific expense of inequality uh, in the UK 
and more broadly, um, and also the extent of our environmental degradation. But but were I to end uh, on a more meaningful note, um, I would say, like we said earlier, that our conversation should not remain on a defunct system because I think it's a cul-de-sac and because its its consequences are so violent. Yeah. I think migration is a word with wider meanings and these meanings precede the limits of Western illegality. The, it's a word that has been sustained for centuries uh, before the invention of the nation. And uh, I, I'd like to reflect on, on how being a migrant is about essentially learning how to be unsettled. And I, I really love the expansive offerings of Manisha Dasgupta and her notion of border-crossing people mm. and also Gloria Andalusia's idea of border consciousness that understands our humanity as innately shared and interconnected. And that is where our future lies. That's the basis, right, for a new way of connecting to one another that ultimately has the potentiality, I would hope, I'm sure you to um, to subvert the current structures. Um, but before we go to the quick fire round, um, you shared with me uh, a project you've worked on called Race, Space and Architecture, which is a, a for anyone who's interested in an open access curriculum um, I was wondering if you wanted to share a few words about that for anyone who might be interested in looking into it a bit more. Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that this was a project very much forged and sustained by the amazing architect and, and theorist Huda Taub, who works uh, at the University of Cape Town, as well as the electric Tandy Lewinson, who works at the Royal College of Art. And this was really about um, wanting to come together to first of all collate a whole lot of fantastic films, writings, readings that people around the world had put um, into play around themes like circulation and domesticity and incarceration. And the point of putting these together, of putting a writing from Uzbekistan next to a writing from Abidjan is to bring into dialogue questions of understanding power, racialized power, uh, processes of capitalism and how these are also part and parcel of the construction of, of, of race and racism. Um, and then to think very much about how they spatialized uh, in, in the designed world and in material reality. Mm. And uh, it, it, was, it was a joyful project in the sense that we have had, you know, everyone who's worked on it has collaborated, um, often for tiny bits of money or no money at all. And there have been incredible offerings, uh, podcasts, um, little proje projects that are interventions from around the world. And uh, it just it's, it's, it's about a different constitution, if you like, of learning and learning together that's not necessarily about being in a, in a university and having to pay for a degree, but the question of what happens when we make something open access and we allow people to build it um, with us over a period of time. And, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely been one of the most meaningful uh, and optimistic experiences in, in my working career over the past few years. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have been part of that. But thank you also to Huda and Tandi um, for being and such amazing people to work with. And so, I mean, for people who want to look into that a little bit further, I mean, one of the questions for people who are wondering, you know, what 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 are the themes maybe that are addressed? I mean, one of the questions on the website that caught my eye, what are the spatial contours of capitalism that produce racial hierarchy? So if you want to learn about that and much, much more, where should they look, Dr. Hall? All they need to do is type into their search engine race, space and architecture and the website will come up. And we have asked many academics to allow us to use their work for free so there's no paywall and you can just click in and on the various links and hopefully 
you know, follow your heart and your mind and, and, and see what that website has to offer for you. Fantastic. Thank you. So we're going to head to the quick fire round now. I know that you gave uh, us your definition of whiteness earlier, which was a, a protracted one. Do you have a, a nutshell version of whiteness? What's your defi- quick, quick definition of whiteness? Hierarchy, subjugation, systemic pulling down of people on the basis of the construct of race and using the construct of race in order to extract for profit and gain and to uh, accommodate the, the use of violence in that process. What is the root of racism? The root of racism, I would say, is is greed. It, it is the will to dominate uh, for power and for profit. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world, in your view, and is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I think that there is the potential for a world of mutual respect, regard, uh, coming together to make things with one another, to discover our shared humanity, to reinforce our shared humanity. Um, But I don't think it exists within our current structures of liberal democracy or capitalism. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Whiteness is an essential conceptual tool. For a start, it demands of those who are positioned as white to reconsider their privilege, uh, but it also demands of us that we participate in and alongside and listen to and support and engage in anti-racist praxis. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall. Um, It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, If people would like to purchase your book, The Migrant's Paradox, um, do you have a bookseller of choice that you'd like to flag? Well, I'm delighted to say, and I'm sure the booksellers would like you to buy it, uh, but it is on Manifold as open access and free. So please feel free to, to get hold of the book that way. Well, that's a first on this podcast. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Hall. Um, And on that note, I take this opportunity to thank you once again for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. And please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.